Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the problems of overconsumption and some policy solutions for reducing waste through a circular rather than linear approach to the economy. Sources today include TED-Ed, Global News, Good Together, Euronews, the PBS NewsHour, The Circular Economy Show, and Andrewism, with additional members-only clips from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and The Circular Economy Show. Each one of these machines represents the economic system of a country. Every machine has three inputs. Labor, people's work. Capital, all the stuff that a business might use, including intangibles like ideas. And natural resources. The machine converts these inputs into goods and services. And because we're willing to pay for the things the machine produces, what the machine is really creating here is value. Economies turn inputs into value. What determines whether the machine is capitalist, communist, socialist, or something else? Three dials. The first dial controls who owns the capital. Over here, the government owns every bit of capital, down to the last office paperclip. North Korea is probably the closest economy to 0%. On the other end of the spectrum, at 100%, private citizens own all the capital. The U.S. is about here, at roughly two-thirds private ownership. The second dial dictates how much control the government has over what gets produced. In economies with high coordination, like the old USSR, the government dictated what the economy could and would produce. In economies with low coordination, the government might mandate a few things, but leaves most decision-making up to the private sector. The third dial controls how extensively markets are used to set prices. Over here at 0%, we have economies with no markets, where the government sets all prices and consumers have no say. Over here at 100%, markets are used to set the price of everything, even things like basic life-saving health care. You can also think of this dial as controlling the number and extent of government regulations, from tariffs on foreign goods to antitrust laws to regulations on net neutrality. So capitalism isn't just one type of economy. It's a wide range of possible economies, which makes answering the question of whether capitalism is broken complicated. But we're going to try. At the height of the Industrial Revolution, the dials were set pretty close to what we'd now call free market or laissez-faire capitalism. There were very few regulations, and economists of the time believed that capitalism's invisible hand, basically individuals acting freely and in their own self-interest, would produce optimal outcomes, both for the economy and for society. And that's how we ended up with embalming fluid in milk. In the late 1800s in the United States, food manufacturers put all kinds of cheap and sometimes dangerous adulterants in food to maximize profits. What they were doing was legal, but of course, wrong. There was a public outcry, and in 1906, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drugs Act, setting the stage for the Food and Drug Administration, which watches over the U.S.'s food supply to this day. Now, these days, no economy really practices pure, invisible-hand capitalism. But some people are increasingly worried that today's threats, like climate change and rising inequality, can't be solved by any capitalist system. Let's look at climate change first. Capitalist economies incentivize growth. That's created massive demand for the cheapest energy possible, which for a long time was fossil fuels. Burning all those fossil fuels unquestionably drove and continues to drive climate change. 
Not only that, but the desire to maximize profit usually gives corporations a powerful incentive to ignore inconvenient truths. Just like tobacco companies denied the link between cigarettes and cancer, oil and gas companies denied or downplayed climate science for decades. Next, inequality. Inequality is complicated enough that we made a whole video about it. But the simple story is, in many countries, inequality is rising. In the US, the UK, Canada, Ireland, and Australia, the top 1% of income earners have been eating up a larger and larger share of total income over the past 50 years. In the UK, the top 1% share doubled from 7% in 1980 to 14% in 2014. But that's not the whole picture. In England, the country for which we have the best data before capitalism, the share of income going to the top 5% of income earners peaked at around 40% in 1801. And then, as capitalism took hold, it fell steadily to a low of about 17% in 1977. These days, it's back up, hovering around 26%. And here's another data point. In many European countries in Japan, the top 1%'s share of income came down from 20 to 25% in the early 1900s to 7 to 12% today. So is capitalism increasing inequality or not? It depends. Remember, there's a wide range of settings that all fall under capitalism, meaning that one country's version can look very different from another's. It's totally possible that inequality could be increasing in China's version of capitalism while it decreases in France's. Capitalism, it seems, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it generates a huge amount of value, which translates to almost everyone having more money than they otherwise would. On the other hand, it also funnels the biggest chunk of that money into the wallets of relatively few people. Capitalism's staunchest defenders say that with enough grit and determination, anyone can join the ranks of the wealthy. Is that really true? In a free, capitalist market, the wealth generated by successful companies mostly flows to the owners, and along with that come other benefits — education, health, social standing, and power. If owners tinker with the machine so that it benefits them more than others, they create a feedback loop where power and everything that flows with it calcifies within their families. And then you've got basically an aristocracy. So let's break down the question we started with. Is pure, invisible hand capitalism with all the dials set to the extremes broken? Yeah, but it's also kind of irrelevant since no country uses pure capitalism. Is contemporary capitalism, as it's practiced in much of the world today, broken? While it's the major driver of climate change and in many places is contributing to rising inequality, and it may even be creating a de facto aristocracy in certain countries, so not looking good. The critical question is, can we fix contemporary capitalism by fiddling with the dials or restricting who can turn them, or do we need to tear the machine down and build a new one from scratch? Water is humanity's lifeblood. From the food we eat to the ecosystems and biodiversity that enrich our world, to the prosperity that sustain nations, to the economic engines of agriculture, manufacturing, and energy generation, to our health, hygiene, and survival itself. Water is a human right and a common development denominator to shape a better future but water is in deep trouble. We are draining humanity's lifeblood through vampiric overconsumption and unsustainable use and evaporating it through global eating. We've broken the water cycle 
destroyed ecosystems and contaminated groundwater. Nearly three out of four natural disasters are linked to water. One in four people lives without safely managed water services or clean drinking water. And over 1.7 billion people lack basic sanitation. Excellencies, dear friends, this is more than a conference on water. It is a conference on today's world seen from the perspective of its most important resource. This conference must represent a quantum leap in the capacity of member states and the international community to recognize and act upon the vital importance of water to our world's sustainability and as a tool to foster peace and international cooperation. From water as a key driver across economies and policy making, to the recognition of water and sanitation as a human right, from the integration of water and climate policies to an innovative approach in the use of water in food production, now is the moment for game-changing commitments to bring the Water Action Agenda to life. A 2022 study by the University of California, Los Angeles, estimated that almost half of the world's population will suffer severe water stress by 2030. This is a crisis, one that affects people around the globe and one that demands concrete action. That's why I am proud to announce that the United States is committing $49 billion toward equitable, climate-resilient water and sanitation investments at home and around the globe. That significant number should demonstrate just how seriously we take water security. These investments will help to create jobs, prevent conflict, safeguard public health, reduce the risk of famine and hunger, and enable us to respond to climate change and natural disasters. This announcement builds on the first ever White House Action Plan on Global Water Security, an innovative and unified approach that brings together U.S. diplomatic and development tools, as well as science and technology to respond to water security around the world. But let's be clear, the global the global crisis requires global cooperation. The Security Council must take up the issue of water scarcity, especially because we know that water scarcity exacerbates conflict and disrupts peace and security. Without water, there cannot be food. There cannot be peace. There cannot be life. We must build a future where safe water flows freely to all. don't think we are talking enough about consumption and doing it in a more responsible and conscious way. I mean, that's the whole reason we founded uh, this, this podcast and Brightly. I mean, it, it, to me, it becomes so much more of an issue when you actually start to think about the, um, you know, the impact that you're having on a personal level. Um, and so, you, but listeners, you know, we like to throw in statistics um, just to help, uh, you know, ground you in what we're talking about. But, um, you know, in 2022, so last year, um, U.S. consumers spent $17.4 trillion on goods and services. Um, and that spend has almost doubled in 17 years. So 
we are accumulating more things. Um, and, you know, the EPA, we've talked about this statistic before, but I love it where, because it, it's just staggering, in my opinion. Like the EPA uh, says that the average American produces 4.5 pounds of trash every single day. Um, and that's crazy. I mean, like, can you, I'm trying to think like, Nick, what's something that weighs like five pounds that people, is it like, I'm like, how, like, how much is like a sack of flour? Weigh? I'm trying yeah, to maybe, remember. <laughs> maybe one of those, even the more blowing mind blowing stat is the average American will produce 128,000 pounds in a lifetime. Oh my and God. That's just one person. So do the math times the number of Americans. And you think about consumption. And what happens to everything? Where does it all go? Yep. Right. So I've been I've been interviewing and talking to a lot of recycling companies and waste management companies, just more or less out of curiosity of, you know, there's still value in this waste stream. And I think yeah. the hard part is how do you extract? You know, how do you reuse these things? And so I think that, you know, you're seeing a lot more innovation in this space than we've ever had, which is good. But it is a, you know, it, it is a massive problem. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like people who want to still have a lot of stuff oftentimes rely on this sort of happy path that their goods go through when they leave their house, right? So recycling or goodwill or, you know, a bunch of, you know, various ways to get rid of your things. Um, but ultimately, I'm a big believer that, you know, number one, you should try and get somebody else to reuse it directly, right? Like using an offer up or buy nothing or something like that, because that's like a direct impact. Um, but then when we think about recycling, donation, et cetera, like stuff really doesn't end up oftentimes where we think it does. Um, we had a great podcast with um, uh, a, a gentleman who came from a family of um, garbage collectors for more, more, you know, uh, for lack of a better word for many, many years, it was his family business. And, you know, they have just been, they focused on textiles, but they, he talked for a long time about just how it's not ending up where we think it is. So I'm curious to know, like in some of these conversations you've been having on stuff TV, like what, you know, what are, what are some things that are jumping out to you? Yeah, I think, well, I think starting all the way, um, you know, to your house and as consumers. So let's talk about manufacturing for a minute. So some of the trends, I think the things that are bubbling up require government and require policy. And yes. so if you look at, uh, I think we all go through this is, you know, you take your trash and you go, where bin does this even go in? It is so complicated. And you know, the little recycle kind of uh, the sign on there that was never intended to be recycled. Uh, recyclable. Yeah. That that came about is just a way to label and describe what the products are made of. And then we, over time, said, okay, these mean certain things. Uh, it's extremely complicated. And I think that's where government needs to come in and create more policy, kind of like um, like a traffic light. Like we know no yeah. matter what city in America you go to, what a red light means. Why don't we know, why aren't, you know, why aren't our things labeled in a way that really explains that? And so one challenge is manufacturing is typically you know, done with a large audience or a global audience in mind. But the way we deal with waste is very regionalized, sometimes down to the city level. So where you live versus where I live, chances are they do things differently. And so that creates a macro challenge. It's, it's very different. So I have heard that they are going to start to enforce different types of labeling uh, for manufacturers. And I've also heard they're going to put some of the burden on manufacturers of what happens with their waste. So a good example would be, you know, in, in the world today, we will produce 500 billion, with a B, plastic water bottles. Coke yeah. 
Coca-Cola is probably a big part of that. So I think if they're manufacturing that many water bottles, then they should have some level of liability to say, okay, how are these disposed? So I think yeah, those are all very good, good things at a macro level. And then, you know, part of it is just, I, I think it's, it, I think it's challenging to educate consumers on like, oh, you're going to stand there. You need like a PhD to figure out what goes where. So exactly. You do. Part, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's part of it is, can we simplify that? Can we put some of the burden on manufacturers? And hopefully over, this will take a while. You know, can, can we, can, can we do things at the very, at that spot where as consumers, we put it in the trash? Yeah. Because okay? then what happens is then waste management and other places inherit that, but we play a vital role in that. So like if we throw a battery, for example, in our trash, that is catastrophic you know, for a lot of waste management companies. It creates fires, explosions, like, you know, so that is bad. Um, you know, how much are we wish cycling? So if we take, uh, you know, plastic and we throw, you know, or we, we actually take trash and throw it in our plastic, in our uh, recycle bin. Well, now you just tainted the whole bin, right? And yeah, so exactly. that is, that is a big challenge, but there are some cool things. You have to look at it step by step and really break it down. So there's companies, for example, that are doing uh, AI um, recycling robots. In fact, I had a company called Glacier on the Stuff TV podcast recently. Okay. And the cool thing about that is they are, they can go super fast and they can learn and they can create data. And you can learn a lot from that. So that is a big challenge in, in recycling now is you don't have a lot of very, uh, you know, accurate data. And so can we learn from that and understand what are the things that are coming through these plants? Then the other thing um, some of these companies are doing is they're starting to understand, you know, we, we have a lot of value here. Why are we just throwing these in landfills? Can we actually do more local recycling? And so, you know, I had a, a recent uh a company that I had on was Republic Services, and they're a okay. large waste management company. Um, they have about 17,000 trucks. This gives you an idea how big this company is. And they are trying to partner with companies like Tide to say, hey, you keep throwing out these, you know, consumers keep throwing out these, um, you know, these bins, but we can actually reuse them in the, this new center they have called a polymer center. And so now you don't have to ship these goods around the world anymore. You can say, oh, I'm just going to get my supply locally. Which is yeah. huge. Which is now you're, that, you want to talk about the impacts to the environment. That is a massive, massive change. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... We live, particularly in the West, particularly the last 150 years, in a society that has a very strong belief that growth is the sign of progress. And to a certain extent, it's true. We love to see our kids grow. We love to see nature growing in spring. Growth is a wonderful, healthy phase of life. But in our economies, it's like we've turned to Peter Pan economics, the economy that never wanted to grow up. It wanted to grow and grow and grow forever, and it becomes this permanent phase. But we already know in our own bodies, in our own lives, that there's another side to this metaphor of growth that we love so much. If I told you my friend had gone to the doctor and the doctor told her she had a growth, that already feels completely different because in the space of our own bodies, 
We know that when something tries to grow endlessly within this healthy, dynamic living whole, it is a threat to the health of the whole. And we do everything we can to stop it. But when we step into our economies, for some reason, we think that endless growth is progress. And we are now running into severe problems because we are addicted to endless growth. Simon Kuznets, he was asked in the 1930s by US Congress to come up for the first time with a single number to measure the output of the economy. America could say, well, we produce so many tons of steel and so many bags of grain, but can we add it all together? So they commissioned him to do this, and he said, yes, I can. I can add it all together in one number, national income, what we now know as GDP. But he gave it with a caveat. He said, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be known from this number. Don't mix it up with welfare, right? Because it tells us nothing about the unpaid caring work of parents. Tells us nothing about the value that's created in communities, because that's not priced. And it, it's a measure of the flow of economic value. It tells us nothing about the living world, the forests, the mines that, that get run down in order to create this value. But the convenience, the temptation of this single number was so great that politicians sort of tucked it in their armpit and carried right on. And we ended up in a horse race of pursuing GDP growth. The dream is that GDP can keep on increasing, we can have increasing financial returns, but that we can decouple from using Earth's resources. We can use less carbon and less metals and minerals and plastics, and we can use less of the Earth's land surface and separate these two, ever-rising GDP and falling resource use. It's a fabulous dream. Would that it would be true. We are at a time of climate emergency of ecosystem collapse. We need to radically reduce our use of Earth's resources, and we're nowhere close to that. So I offer it as a compass for 21st century prosperity. And this compass, silly though it sounds, it looks like a donut with the hole in the middle. So imagine from the center of it, humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the middle of that picture. So in the hole in the middle of the donut, that is the place where people don't have enough resources to meet the essentials of life. It's where people don't have enough food or healthcare or education or housing or gender equality or political voice or access to energy. And we want to leave nobody in that hole. We want to get everybody over a social foundation of well-being so all people on this planet can lead lives of dignity and opportunity and community. And in low-income countries, it absolutely makes sense. Yes, let's see the economy grow in ways that invest in health and education and transport for all. That was a very 20th century project. We're in the 21st century. We have Earth system scientists who started looking at the impact we were having on the climate and the loss of soils and acid rain and the hole in the ozone layer and the collapse of species. And they said, hang on. We've been ignoring our planet. In the growing to meet human needs, we have ignored the fact that we are deeply dependent on this delicately balanced living planet. It's the only one we know of out there. And when we use Earth's resources in such a way that we begin to push ourselves beyond the living capacities of this planet, we are literally undermining the life-supporting systems on which we depend. So hang on, just as there's an inner limit of resource use, and we call that poverty and deprivation, there's an outer limit of humanity's resource use. That's ecological degradation, and we are breaking down this planet on which we depend. So there you get the donut. You get the inside, which is leave nobody behind in the hole, but don't overshoot the outer ring either. And so the shape of progress has fundamentally changed. It's no longer this ever-rising line up exponential growth. 
that we hear about in the financial news all the time, it's balance. To me, a source of real hope is that we deeply understand this at the level of our body. You go to the doctor, the doctor will say, have enough food, but not too much, enough water, oxygen, exercise, sleep, anything you like, have enough, but not too much. We, our health lies in balance. And if we can take that metaphor from the human body to the planetary body, we give ourselves a cracking chance at understanding the deep interdependence of our world. The world uses more resources than our planet can sustain. Current levels of global consumption suggest we will need three Earths by 2050. The circular economy calls for a different approach. Transforming the traditional take-make-dispose model, it seeks to create a world where very little goes to waste. The current linear model of extracting finite resources simply cannot continue. By its very definition, if you have a limited amount of something that you're continually using and not replenishing in any way, it's going to run out eventually and there's going to be none left. So that linear model is unsustainable and the circular economy is one of the tools that can deal with that problem. As part of its Green Deal strategy to reach climate neutrality by 2050, the EU recently unveiled a new Circular Economy Action Plan. That aims to redesign the way Europe's economy works from root to tip. The new Circular Economy Action Plan from the EU sets a really ambitious goal and the big change that it brings to how we use and consume uh, products and the big effect it will have is that it's put a focus on eco-design. Critically, whether a component part breaks or whether the product goes out of style or just isn't wanted anymore, that it, can, it still has a life afterwards. And even if it doesn't have a life as that functioning product, the component parts of that product can be recovered. Transitioning the way we manufacture products will be a huge challenge. Many sectors like the textile and fashion industry are embedded in the old ways of doing things. Globally right now it's estimated less than 1% of all textiles are recycled into new fabrics. Most are burned or sent to landfill. But supporters of change insist it can bring massive business benefits. The opportunities coming out of the circular economy have to be easy and they have to be easy to implement and easy to be uh, on the receiving end as a consumer. If you're a manufacturing company, for example, and you're incentivized to retain uh, responsibility and ownership of the materials that you're using, then it incentivizes you also to design those in a way that they're not going to become waste. The end result of that is that businesses move to a service-based model it's almost like a leasing arrangement. And that's a fundamental shift in how consumers interact with businesses. And that's already happening uh, in, in a lot of cases across member states. But what about the rest of the world? Even if Europe does manage to transform the way it currently uses resources, will it be enough to spur change elsewhere? On circular economy, I've travelled a lot with it and... I found in New York, in Colombia, in Australia, they're all referencing back to what is being done within the EU. 
So certainly we're setting a good example of best practice that other other jurisdictions are watching and are starting to follow. But secondly, we have trade deals. And in an interconnected, globalized economic system, um, the trade deals are now containing elements of circularity in them. Once you introduce that, the impact that the EU countries can have and the EU as a trading bloc can have on global supply chains is massive. We are in the middle of a long overdue membership drive. It's one of those things that doesn't feel like it should be necessary, but is. I mean, people are free to sign up for a membership all year round, but a lot of people, maybe people like you, no judgment at all, often wait for a special occasion when someone like me finally says, no, seriously, we really actually need new members and we need them right now. So here I go. We're a small team working on a small budget, so every new member really does make a difference to us. Members have been supporting the show and keeping us going since 2010, but there are always ebbs and flows. Financial situations change, political proclivities change, and so some of those who have supported us in the past no longer do. So every once in a while, we need to really make a point of asking for new members because that is literally how we pay for food, housing, medical insurance, and all the rest. Yes, there are ads in the show, but they don't pay all the bills. And since it's been too long since our last membership drive, we really actually do need new members and we need them now. To sweeten the deal, membership is on discount for 20% off this month, so you can grab that and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode. There will be bonus episodes where the team get together to basically try to make each other laugh while also discussing really important issues, and there will be an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com slash support for details, and that link is in the show notes. Thanks in advance for your support. James Fainhoff is taking us for a tour of Denham City. It's a combination workshop, foundation, archive, and trade school in Amsterdam, a city with a high concentration of big-name denim brands and denim wearers. We wear it to work, we wear it to school, weddings and funerals. We wear denim all the time. But denim is also one of the most resource-intensive fabrics in the world. Each pair of jeans requires thousands of gallons of water and the use of polluting chemicals to produce. Clearly, if you use 7,000 liters of water per jean and you're producing about a billion a year, that's something that's going to end at some point because it's just not going to be enough water for everybody. So Feinhoff is experimenting with different ideas, like increasing the use of recycled materials. This fabric is made using 20% recycled cotton fiber. This is part of the high-tech part. This is cool. And rather than using gallons upon gallons of water to give jeans that finished look, they're trying lasers instead. Denim isn't the only industry in Amsterdam focusing more on sustainability. The entire city is in the midst of a massive shift launched last year, embracing a radical new economic theory with a catchy name, Donut Economics. This is the shift we need to make if we, humanity, are going to thrive here together this century. Kate Rayworth of Oxford University calls herself a renegade economist. She came up with the model, outlined in her 2017 book, which made waves around the world and was even commended by the Pope. What is donut economics? 
So Donut Economics, it's not about donuts, but it's about the future of humanity. We offer a donut-shaped compass for creating the 21st century that we want. What makes the theory radical is Rayworth's assertion that governments need to stop looking at GDP growth as the ultimate measure of success. We're getting very, very clear signals from the Earth system, from climate breakdown, from ecological breakdown, that the way we are pursuing growth is destroying the living systems on which we depend. Instead, she says, society should strive to operate within two concentric circles that look like a donut. She uses a diagram like this to explain. The outer ring represents Earth's ecological ceiling, limits on damage being done to the planet, including climate change, air pollution, and shrinking freshwater supplies. The inner ring represents a social foundation, minimum living standards, like having enough food, housing, work, and a political voice. The ring in between, described as humanity's sweet spot, is the donut. So let's leave nobody in the hole in the middle of the donut. Everybody into this lovely green ring. Don't we need economic growth in order for economies to survive and provide resources to their citizens? What we need are economies that enable people to have good jobs in communities where they reap some of the value that's created. So we need to reorient our economies away from the notion that growth is success to the notion that thriving that meets the needs of all people within the means of the planet, that's success. Amsterdam was the first city in the world to formally adopt this model. And they did it last April, right after the coronavirus crisis began. Historical part of uh, of Amsterdam with the the canals. Deputy Mayor Marika van Dornink saw it as an opportunity. Actually, this is a time where people start thinking about what is really important in life. And maybe money-making isn't the most important. It's about having enough, but not having everything. Van Dornink says Amsterdam is now full speed ahead with the donut. Part of that means becoming a so-called circular city by 2050. A circular city is a city where we don't have to waste. If something is broken, we want to have it repaired. If something can't be repaired, we want to have the materials that are, the product are made of can be reused. But we also want to cut down on a consumption as a, uh, as a whole. In short, reduce, reuse and recycle. And they want to do it in three key areas, food, consumer goods and construction. They've come up with a system called the monitor to measure their progress. Among the goals... By 2030, the city must reduce overall consumption by 20% and reduce food waste by 50%. And starting in 2022, all new urban development in Amsterdam must use sustainable materials as much as possible. For example, on Amsterdam's east side, Beach Island is being built with the donut principles in mind. The city requires construction companies to list a materials passport, so if the building is ever demolished, the building materials can be reused. There will be 8,000 new homes here helping address the city's housing shortage, 40% allocated for social housing, and the homes will be environmentally friendly. Yeah, I think the donut model, yeah, I embrace that totally. Yvonne van Sark lives in another new development on the north side of Amsterdam a floating community that embraces sustainability. So we have five entrances to the jetty, and there, but they're all connected. You can just walk through the area, which is really nice. In all, 46 families live here. This is our house. This is where we live. Her house, like the others, was built elsewhere and towed to this site. 
Van Sark's home is super insulated with natural straw between the walls and solar panels on the roof. So we produce our own electricity and we have a smart grid that um, shares it among all the households. It's vacuum, so... They have special toilets that use much less water. And they contract with a company to share electric cars and bikes. Some of the techniques we have been piloting, we hope they will become much more spread around the city and around Holland and around the world. Yeah. The donut model started us thinking and also was a great um, segue into talking to government. Back in Denham City, James Feinhoff credits the donut with giving government, activists and business leaders a much needed space to collaborate around shared goals. Last October, Feinhoff and the city of Amsterdam helped organize some 30 denim-related businesses and organizations to form the Denim Deal, an agreement to produce 3 billion garments that include 20% recycled materials by 2023. Usually, jeans people don't really talk to government a lot. They talk about style and street and cool. But since we had the same intentions, it was very easy to align with the city of Amsterdam and the Ministry of Infrastructure to make this happen. Amsterdamers like Feinhoff are enthusiastic about the denim deal and other donut-related projects. But will they be enough to address the global environmental crisis that Kate Rayworth describes? It's not an even situation because you can... No, says economist and income inequality expert Branko Milanovic, one of Kate Rayworth's most outspoken critics. When it comes to real uh, policy advice, it's very, very weak and it's purely voluntary and there is really no bite in that advice. Milanovic also thinks Rayworth's ideas about limiting global economic growth are unrealistic and would lead to trade-offs the world isn't prepared for. The issue is really if we were to expose Kate's ideas that we should not have an increase in the world GDP, That means that we have either to make rich people become much poorer than they are now, or we will have to keep all the poor people at the same very low level of income for a long time. Are these ideas politically viable? Well, I think that they are not viable. And I think that she's using the word, for example, thriving, that we can be flourishing and thriving without having higher income. Yes, maybe we could, but maybe also as a fact is that many people want to have higher income in order to live better. How realistic is all of this? How do you convince the world's largest economies to get on board? Well, I would flip it around and say, how realistic is it to keep running economies that think they can grow endlessly while we are visibly, evidently destroying the life-supporting systems on which our planet depends? To help promote her ideas, Rayworth launched the Donut Economics Action Lab. She says cities including Brussels, Copenhagen, Portland, Philadelphia, and others are reaching out to her to learn how to incorporate the concept of donut economics into their long-term plans. It seems like something that a lot of people are waiting for. This idea, there is an alternative, there's another way of we can rearrange our economics that is better for the people and is better for the planet. And don't wait for the perfect moment because the perfect moment is now. People come to us and they think that circular design is all about recycling. Recycling is one component, so it's very important to um, consider how we design our garments with recycled material and also how we design for our garments to be recyclable. 
but it's just one element of a of a wider story and a wider system. We've talked about already some of the tools in the book are around systems thinking and actually thinking beyond just the product itself um, and thinking more about actually all the different elements of the pro- product and how they come together. So it's not just about recycling, it's, it's much more than that. It's really <laughs> interesting because I think it's, there's, there's something around the communication of um, what, what good looks like, which I think you've dived into in, in the book. Yeah. Um, what is your next myth? The next myth is all about durability. So often we get asked or, you know, people really focus on the physical durability of the garment. But actually, it's a lot more than that. It's also about the emotional durability. And that means how do people connect with the garment how can the garment be used over time? So how can you design a garment that lasts through multiple, multiple seasons? It's not just a seasonal thing, but how can you create in a garment that really lasts the tale of time? So you're talking there about the material durability, but also the style. So not something that's going to look out of date mm. in a few months time. Exactly. So I guess the jumper that I'm wearing today, it's quite a standard I guess, polo neck, jumper, black, um, maybe some monochrome colours, white, a bit of grey. I've had this for years. It actually probably needs some care. <laughs> but it's something that I think it's, it's really easy to wear, to throw on. It goes with a lot of different things. For me, it's a timeless piece that I would ha- quite happily keep in my wardrobe because I know it's easy to go with lots of different things. I know that it's, I feel like a black polo neck never really goes out of fashion might get <laughs> might get some alternative opinions about that but yeah I think it's something that can last in my wardrobe for a long time and for me it's that emotional connection of this is something I know I can really easily throw on and it looks good and I maybe look you know presentable to other people as well so it's something I can connect with quite quickly and yeah also for me it's been durable over the years I've worn it a lot but really it's that emotional connection and and how I respond to it and being my wardrobe as well. Yeah. And then I guess bringing it back to your previous point, when it's being designed, it's not just that it's timeless, but eventually, no matter how well you repair it and look after it, you will need to do something with it afterwards. And that goes back to your previous point, right? Yeah. So I guess we we try to anchor um, our circular economy for fashion work around our circular economy for fashion vision um so there's three principles within that one is use more so that's when we're talking about the durability of the garment so both physical and also emotional also um there's a massive opportunity within circular business models so there's an element of yes you have to keep things durable but how do you keep them in the system how do you keep them circulating and how can you ultimately make more money with by producing less or not producing at all um so there's lots of different circular business models we have a paper on this that really explores the the opportunity that exists today um both monetary and also environmentally and um those are our, our two key elements really around how we see garments being able to be used more. The second point of the vision is made to be made again. So this comes to the point of, you know, I've worn this out <laughs> probably the end of, end of its use phase. Maybe it's looking a bit, you know, droopy. We also need to design garments that are made to be made again. So that's talking about they are easily disassemblable, mm-hmm. but then ultimately at the end of its life, they're also recyclable. 
So this is a going back to, you know, how can we keep things in the loop? How can we circulate that material as we go forward? And then the final point of our vision is um, making sure that we're making garments from safe and recycled or renewable content. And actually, there's a quote in the book that I'd quite like to read. Oh, yeah, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) About that one in particular. So um, it's from Geraldine Vallejo, um, and she is from the Caring Group. And it says, circular design is also about ensuring there is no leakage in the system that would harm nature. For instance, practices that use materials that impoverish soils or pollute oceans cannot be part of circular design. So this goes back to our our third point of the vision there around actually using materials that are are safe um, and recycled. But when that's not possible, they could come from renewable sources. And when we talk about renewable sources, we also want... um, those materials and those fibres to be sourced from uh, regenerative production. Um, And that is uh, looking more at how can we give back to nature? How can we create positive outcomes for nature and not harm nature as a process of, of making clothes? Libraries have begun to provide a variety of services in the realm of not just access to knowledge, but also access to materials and training and a social space uncorrupted by the demands of consumerism. With the rise of the internet came a vast expansion in the utopian potential of the library. After all, the library could revolutionize access to whatever we could want or need from humanity's well of common heritage. As a species, we could step up to new heights. And yet, the internet has been sabotaged. Just as the true tragedy of the commons was the loss thereof, the true tragedy of the internet has been its fall from grace. It was the chosen one, and it has been corrupted by digital enclosure and privatization, the rise of tech monopolies, and the forced implementation of artificial scarcity upon the abundance it could provide. But I refuse to let go of the vision. I refuse to discard the unrealized possibilities of the library concept. If we believe that free access to humanity's heritage of knowledge is a right all humans inherently possess, can we not also recognize the right to free access to other essentials of human flourishing? If you don't mind entertaining this thought experiment, let's take a moment to explore what could be the foundational concepts of a library economy. In The Ecology of Freedom, social ecologist Murray Bookchin spends a lot of time exploring three key concepts. Usufruct, the irreducible minimum, and complementarity. These concepts are foundational to any cooperative, caring, and egalitarian society, but particularly to what Bookchin called organic society, which consists of the egalitarian tribal societies that can be found in much of human history. These societies lacked social hierarchy as in institutionalized systems of rank based on status distinctions, and as such lacked domination in the sense of both dominating people and dominating what Bookchin called first nature, the natural ecological world. Our modern society is part of second nature, which is the human world. Begin with the first essential concept for a library economy, usufruct 
refers to the freedom of individuals or groups in a community to access and use, but not destroy, common resources to supply their needs. This is as opposed to the limitation of access based on exclusive ownership. Libraries allow you to access and use books when you need them, and encourage all of us to be good stewards of the books we borrow, taking care of it when we have it, and returning it when we're done, because it belongs to all of us, and to be readily available for use. Imagine this principle applied to libraries of decor, libraries of furniture, or libraries of tools. Perhaps you would borrow cushions, couches, and paintings to suit one interior design taste for a few months before switching it out and trying a new style. You might borrow a shovel from the tool library to get a pum blitz done one weekend and return it when you're done so someone else can use it when they need it. Alternatively, you can keep it for as long as you want to use it all without having to produce excessively or leave stuff wasting away in storage. If we want to live sustainably, we need a library economy. We need an economy based on use of fruct that incentivizes producing enough lasting, durable stuff that everyone can share and use when they need it, instead of producing around planned obsolescence and excess, wasting crucial time, energy, and resources. A library economy would be an essential component in a move towards degrowth, an economic theory we'll be exploring in the next video. The second essential concept for a library economy is the irreducible minimum, which is the guaranteed provision of the means necessary to sustain life, the level of living that no one should ever fall below, regardless of the size of their individual contribution to the community. This includes access to adequate food, water, shelter, clothing, education, and healthcare. Libraries as they exist now provide free access to knowledge, but knowledge is only one component of an individual's and a community's self-actualization, which a library economy should be organized to help reach. Libraries of consumables like food, drugs, and toiletries may be difficult to imagine, which is why in addition to libraries of things, a library economy should also have dispensaries of necessities. Farming cooperatives, in collaboration with cooking collectives, can work to ensure that the entire community is provided with a range of healthy food options from the local and regional gardens, farms, and food forests. The popular assembly can organize with building cooperatives to establish a range of housing options to accommodate the needs of each and every member of the community. An emphasis on slow fashion by a broad and diverse network of designers and tailors, as opposed to fast fashion, would ensure that everyone's wearing clothing that lasts in the styles that they like. A library economy would require a vast reorientation of our priorities from the centrality of capital and competition to the centrality of humanity and cooperation, which brings us to the final core concept for a library economy. Complementarity. Some people are abled, some people are disabled. Some people are bakers, some people are shoemakers. Some people will farm and some people will sing. People will have a say in how they labor and how they leisure. None of them need to be defined by or limited to the things that they do, but all should find joy or satisfaction or accomplishment in the things that they do for the sake of doing them. Together, we will have all the bread, shoes, veggies, and songs we could ask for. And for the things that no one enjoys, as I said in my video on a post-work society, we can find ways to rotate, 
gamify or transform the tasks that need doing to make the drudge less drudgerous. A library economy should be based upon a complex social ecosystem that fulfills the many necessary roles a society needs filling. Complementarity is a way of looking at non-hierarchical difference as something that is generative, where each person contributes a small part to an outcome greater than the sum of its parts. We've just heard clips today, starting with a TED-Ed segment about the economy being out of balance. Global News highlighted World Water Day at the UN. Good Together discussed overconsumption and the need for producers to also take responsibility for what becomes of their products. TED-Ed highlighted the dangers of pursuing GDP growth. Euro News reported on the EU's goal to reshape its economy by 2050. The PBS NewsHour highlighted the work being done in Amsterdam to adhere to the donut economics model. The Circular Economy Show looked at the problem of fast fashion, and Andrewism described the library economy. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which looked at some of the nuts and bolts of turning theory into practice through policymakers. How you get that message across of the circular economy is really important. If you make it too theoretical, too abstract, they don't get it, they don't buy in. So for us, actually having food and drink was a great way to say, well, everyone eats, everyone drinks, people will understand what we're talking about. So from that, we've very much been working to engage, interact and inspire businesses. And from that activity, we've been able to use that to work with the policymakers. And the Circular Economy Show highlighted a case study of the benefits of a business turning to circular economic principles. What we've seen in our modelling is that by adopting regenerative farming practices, because of a demand from business... We see farmer profitability going up by about 3,000 US dollars per hectare per harvest. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support. Now to wrap up, I just want to highlight that we are halfway through our membership drive for July. I sincerely thank everyone who has signed up so far, and especially those who were already members but decided to upgrade their contribution. It's really appreciated. So now there's just two weeks left for new members to take advantage of the sale price we currently have available and keep it for the life of your membership. As I've mentioned, this member drive is a bit overdue, which means that I waited until I realized that it was time to panic a bit about our need for support. So if you've been listening and considering signing up, there is no better time than now in more ways than one. All the details are at bestofleft.com slash support. And of course, that link is in the show notes. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about transforming our economy for the better. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteers 
volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to all those who've already been supporting the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. As you know, you can join them now during our membership drive. And if you want to continue the discussion, you can join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.